Welcome to the History Nerds United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Thank you so much for being here. Today we have author Maria Smilios with her book, The Black Angels, The Untold Story of the Nurses Who Helped Cure Tuberculosis. Sometimes books sneak up on you, right? I, I saw this one, picked it up. I'm like, this, this could be pretty interesting. And then you get two chapters in and you go, holy hell, how did I not know this story at all before? It's amazing. The book is amazing. I actually interviewed Maria for this a couple of months ago, and we were trying to figure out when when to put it out. She said, uh, Black History Month is probably a good idea. And look at us at History Nerd United being timely for once. But real quick, if you have not seen, we have a new History Nerd United YouTube channel. Please go check it out. All of the previous episodes are up there, and very soon we're going to start putting out History Nerds United shorts, where we just do a quick explainer of an amazing thing in history that you may not have heard of before. So please go subscribe, like, do all the YouTube things that people do. Okay, I'm going to shut up. Let's get to Maria. And here we are with author Maria Smilios, The Black Angels, The Untold Story of the Nurses Who Helped Cure Tuberculosis. Maria, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm just going to come out. Where did you even find this story? Now, you're a native New Yorker. You've written tons of stuff, but this is kind of your first full-length book, right? Yes. Where did you even find this story? Because I have a lot of friends from Staten Island who never heard of it. I was working as a science editor. I was editing a book on rare lung diseases, diseases so rare they affected one in a million, and I was bored. It was hot. I wanted the day to end, and I came across this line that said the cure for tuberculosis was found at Seaview Hospital in Staten Island. I grew up in Queens. Staten Island was 10 miles from me. I had been there twice. And I was curious because I, I, I was interested in New York history and I liked disease. And I Googled it and this article came up about the cure at Seaview in 1952. But alongside of it was another article about a woman, Virginia Allen, who had returned home to this nurse's residence that was in the middle of the hospital complex. And it said that she was part of a cohort of nurses called the Black Angels who were part of this cure that was found in 1952. And so what I did next was I Googled her and nothing came up and I Googled all sorts of combinations and still nothing. And I became frustrated. And three days later on a lark, I called the Staten Island Museum and they said, well, Virginia's going to be here this weekend at our grand reopening, giving a little talk on the Black Angels. So I took my then four-year-old and off we went to Staten Island one August day and I found her and she gave this little presentation and I approached her and asked her if I could talk to her more. And she gave me her email and we started meeting up in Harlem at the Schomburg, across the street from the Schomburg because she had been volunteering there at this little cafe in Harlem Hospital. We sat in the back booth. We talked about everything but the Black Angels. She, she loves literature. We talked about Toni Morrison and Harlem in the 40s. And then I would leave and she would say, okay, come back next week and find out more. The thing was, there was nothing to find out because there were no archives. So I would go and find something out about the bigger, broader historical moment. And then I would tell her that and she would send me back. It was like she was vetting me. And finally, about two months later, she said, come to my home in Staten Island. And her home is smack in the middle of the abandoned complex of Seaview Hospital. And it was there where the story unfolded. She came in 1947. Her aunt was one of the first women to come, Edna Sutton, who came in the early 30s. And so Virginia was able to give me the names of other families. And from there, the research just ballooned. And it was all oral history that drove the nurse's story. 
Now, you, you've just mentioned her, Edna. I, I think uh, when you're writing a movie or a book, you want a hook, right? And tuberculosis, if you're a big fan of Doc Holliday, maybe you're going to have the hook for tuberculosis. But I have to say, uh, it's one of the best hooks. Um, it's not the first chapter, but it's the second chapter. When Edna shows up, her story must be just kind of the holy grail for a writer, right? Because her story just sets everything up and you immediately feel for her and I'll let you also introduce Americus for people to understand kind of who's Edna, how does she end up going to New York to work at Seaview? I love this question. Um, Edna, it, it took me a long time to figure out how to begin this book because the, there was no narrative structure around the nurse's story. It, it happened orally. Virginia did not remember that much about her aunt. I was able to piece Edna's story together. I kind of became obsessed with Edna. Let's just put it like that. And I became more obsessed about her life in Savannah. She was born in 1900 on a tar paper shack in one of the poorest sections of Savannah. And her father was this itinerant preacher. And it was him where my obsession really began. He was um, born an enslaved man on a plantation in Wilkes County, Georgia, which is 175 miles from Savannah. And in 1899, he walked off the plantation and walked into Savannah and began to reinvent himself as a preacher. There weren't any records per se of him, but the Savannah Tribune had tons of little tiny articles about the community. So there were about, I don't know, 100, 130 articles about R.V. Sutton, Edna's father. And they would mention Edna. They would mention that Edna went with him to a christening. Edna went with him when he preached this sermon on Isaiah. Edna got a 98 in Latin. Edna loved biology. Edna's son is alive. And so I would go back to the son who's old. He's 80. And I would say to him, hey, Forrest, your mom loved biology. He said, oh, yeah, my mom wanted to be a surgeon. And so the story of Edna was very meticulously knit together. There was a lot on Savannah and what it was like to live down there in the early part of the 20th century. And so the backdrop of her life was not that difficult to reconstruct. I went and I spent time down there. I talked to some historians down there. I walked past her childhood home, which is now demolished, unfortunately. I was able to walk the streets where she walked to school because the Beach Institute is still there. And so I knew I wanted to start the story with a character. I knew this, the, the whole book needed to be rooted in a human story. And Edna set the stage in so many ways of what Black people, and particularly Black Southern women who went to nursing school, were trying to fight against to have a professional career. Because at this point, if you were a Black nurse, you could only work at a Black hospital. There was no chance of you going near any white people if you were a Black nurse. Right. And so... There were about 250 black hospitals in the mid twenties versus 6,000 white hospitals. And the white hospitals, despite being understaffed, would rather remain understaffed than hire a black nurse. And if they did, it was in a quota of one or two and they made their lives miserable. Now, so we're in Georgia and we got to get Edna up to Staten Island, but there's a bit of a complication there, right? Who is Americus and how does she kind of come into this story? So Edna's family goes north sometime in 1925. They go up to Pittsburgh and Edna stays behind with her youngest sister, who's 20 years younger than her, Americus. And she's kind of made this promise to her family to raise her. She's working as a clerk because she can't get a job, sorting and stapling papers. 
And she can't really leave because she's got Americus. And at some point, she gets this opportunity to go to Seaview. Her old teacher tells her about this job at Seaview Hospital in Staten Island. And now she has a choice to make. And this is something that, you know, you don't really think about it deeply until you think about people who've made the choice. The Great Migration. The people who left wanted more opportunity, but they left behind entire lives. You know, despite living in the confines of Jim Crow, Edna had a life down there. She had a vibrant life. She had her community, her church, her friends, and she also had her dreams. And so she's presented with this option and it's either stay and live within the confines of Jim Crow and let her sister grow up with the same rules and regulations that she did or go north and risk your life in this municipal sanatorium with this incurable disease. And so she makes this choice to go north. But what the choice means is that she has to leave her sister with a brother in Washington, D.C. And so she leaves the sister behind in D.C. and she comes north alone. I mean, it feels like the first episode of a Netflix show, right? A a woman who can do so much. She's underemployed. She's facing this. She's facing that. She gets this opportunity. But effectively, she is Americus's mother at this point. And, and, yeah. and that's, she makes a decision. And in order to go up there, she has to give her up. Like this is, people are crying by this point in the episode. I'm telling you right now. I hope so. I hope it becomes a Netflix show or a movie and people cry because she's an extraordinary, they all were extraordinary, but I just love Edna. I had, about 15,000 words written on Edna and her father. And I think it got cut down. I think that chapter is like 4,700 words. I'm going to give my best effort not to make fun of Staten Island, where the editor to this podcast was actually born. I'm going to be a little bit more mature than that. What does Staten Island look like at this point, right? Because right now people are thinking New York City, Staten Island, one of the five boroughs. What does it actually look like at this time? What would Edna have seen when she got to Staten Island? So... That's a really interesting question because Staten Island at the time was detached from the city. There was no connect. You had to get a ferry. Now there's a bridge that connects it to Brooklyn. And it's only 5.2 miles from New York Harbor to St. George Terminal. New York loved in Harbor Island and they still put lots of different hospitals on them. You know, there were hospitals for at the time what they called, you know, the people who were criminally insane, uh, asylums, orphanages. And nobody really lived on these islands. Staten Island was different. People did live there. There were about 480,000 people. No, actually, not 480,000 people, way less. Um, I think there's 480,000 people now. It was very unpopulated, Staten Island. It was agrarian. It was farmland, cows and chickens and vast open spaces. It was bucolic. It was beautiful. It was green and lush. And then you had the mouth to the Atlantic on one side and New York Harbor on the other. You could see the lights of the city twinkling. So it was very magical. As, as I say, you know, when Edna gets there, she sees these quaint houses with little country kitchens, but it had a dark past. Staten Island had a quarantine station in the mid 19th century and it got burned down by the residents because they believed it had this miasma of disease coming from it. And so when Seaview was built in 1913 on Staten Island, people were not happy. The people who had experienced the quarantine station, many were still alive. And so you could walk the shore and you'd get like a tibia or half of a skull coming up because they were also buried. The people who died in this quarantine station were also buried there. 
when Edna arrives, she arrives in this like beautiful bucolic place where there's, you know, there's the smell of brine in the air because it was all oystermen fishing there. And there's this, you know, it's laced with salt water, the air, and, and it's green and beautiful. And there are these people <laughs> on the island who are not happy that there's sea view and that there's black nurses coming to their island. And so they believe that the nurses are contagious because they, they fling the disease everywhere. One nurse said that uh, when you rode the bus, people moved away from us, like the disease was going to jump off of us onto them. And then there was also the color of their skin. People did not like that there were black nurses coming to Staten Island. And then later that became the excuse for redlining the district up there. And I mean, amazingly, racism is actually kind of a, the, the minor villain in this one. The major villain is tuberculosis. So a lot of people died from TB. At this point in history, what is known about it? What is thought about it? You already mentioned people don't understand really how it spread or anything like that. What did they know about TB at this point in time? At this point, almost everybody knew somebody that had tuberculosis. One in seven people were dying. It was a fear disease. It stirs most potent. It was a disease that stigmatized. It ostracized people. And it killed at a very rampant rate particularly the, the people who lived on the Lower East Side. At the time, it had, there was 80,000 five-story buildings housing over 2 million people at the time, two-thirds of New York's population, and most of them were immigrants who had come off of these Grand Liners and made their way to America for a better life. And so the city couldn't stand the people that lived down there. They couldn't, they, they believed that they were harbingers of disease. They were uncultured, they called them. They called them uncouth, immoral. And so what they did when tuberculosis started to spread, because they were living in what Jacob Rees called fever breeding structures in these apartments, 300 square feet, 10 to 12 people at a time with no air, no sunlight, no windows that opened, they got sick. They built Seaview, as uh, the commissioner of health had said, as, quote, a necessary precaution to protect those who don't have tuberculosis against the carelessness of those who get sick, end quote. So they quarantined them on Staten Island and they sent them to Seaview and they were considered second class citizens, expendable. That's where the kind of heart of the book is, like who lives, who dies, who deserves to live, who deserves to die. And so they staffed the hospital with nurses who were also considered second-class citizens and expendable. And TB is a very strange disease. I, I really love the way you kind of explain it. You could have it, and it could not kill you. Or it could wait a month to kill you. It could wait 10 years to kill you. Or it might come and then almost kill you, and then just basically go into almost a, a hibernation. Mm -hmm. There wasn't something that you can say, all right, like, you have this, this is going to happen on this timeline. Each person, it seemed like it was almost a personal disease. Tuberculosis, the microbe, I, I say it's an arrogant microbe. It's wildly, it's stealth. It's beautifully rendered to kill and to torment somebody and do it in the most torturous way possible, very slowly. So the symptoms do not come on strong or, or they don't come on overnight. They don't rage like, you know, bubonic plague where you're full of pustules and the bubos and you're oozing. TB, you can have it and then it could take weeks before you start to feel a listlessness, a cough, but you're contagious and you're spreading it. And that's the problem with it, that you don't know. Think of COVID, you know, you don't test positive maybe until day three or four, but you still are contagious. Well, TB is like 
300 times COVID, you know, because it's going on for a longer period of time and your viral load is getting heavier and heavier. And so by the time you're diagnosed, you're pretty sick. The average stay at Seaview was a year. Medical cards that I looked at showed people 600 days, 800 days, over a thousand days, over three straight years at Seaview. The, the problem with tuberculosis is that it consumes you. That's why it's called consumption. It consumes you from the inside out. The microbe gnaws away at tissues, at bones, at muscles, and it begins to, in the lungs, it, can, it pulverizes them. It liquefies them. In the brain, it causes lesions. In the kidneys, your kidneys become these two shrunken nodules. And so when they say consumption, it's literally consuming you and you end up wasting away. And these are the mythologies behind tuberculosis that, oh, it's a coughing disease. It wasn't just a coughing disease. It was a disease that rendered you completely, it wasted you. It wasted your muscles. It wasted your entire body. People lay, they were anorexic. I read report after report of, and that was the word they used, anorexic. It was a horrible way to die. And it took a long, long time and there were no drugs. This is before the advent of one antibiotic. And I mean, luckily at this point in time, right, all of the safety measures that nurses have today, they had then, right? Everybody, everybody was nice and, you know, gloved up and face masks and everything, right? So we were, <laughs> they were protecting the nurses, right? Not at all. The nurses, if they were able to wear a mask, were lucky. In the surgical ward, they were gowned up, but the nurses didn't even wear masks. They had this supervisor, Miss Lorna Dune Mitchell, the daughter of a Confederate medic. She was recruited from Willard Parker Hospital, which was one of the premier infectious disease hospitals in New York City, to retrain and retain the staff of Black nurses. She was a Teutonic white woman who did not believe in masking. She thought masks made nurses complacent, so she did not want them wearing it masks. She believed that they could stay safe by a good diet, good sleep, and hand washing. And the good sleep is, is ironic because they were working 14-hour days and sometimes their commute was over two hours. So they really weren't getting that much sleep. What I really appreciated from that too is it's easy to take somebody like Lorna and just make her, you know, a straight villain or something. But you talk about how she actually did care. She she was a disciplinarian and almost a totalitarian, but she did care and she did think that in a lot of ways she was doing the right things for the hospital. She was a complicated figure because I talked to nurses' families and one of the families remembered Miss Lorna Dune Mitchell. Miss Lorna Dune Mitchell was the best friend of the grandmother and the grandmother was an African-American nurse who came up from Alabama. And she was one of the, they said, most loving human beings around. And then there were other families and the newspaper reports that said she was one of the most horrible people around. And she was accused of racism. She was born in the late 19th century, as I said, in rural Virginia to the daughter of a Confederate medic. So her mindset was already kind of raised to be racist. And she, she, fits into these shoes of supervisors, white supervisors, who wielded their power against black nurses in, in these kind of perverse ways. But she did train nurses well. Virginia says it all the time. We were so highly trained. We were, we were taught so well under Miss Mitchell because she was an expert in infectious disease. And the reason these nurses stood on the front lines in 1951 
during the cure and were able to do what they did is because of their training. Now, that also becomes complicated. They, they had to listen because if they lost their job, they really couldn't find another one. And if they, there were only four hospitals in New York that hired black nurses. And so they would have to start again. They'd have to reapply and they'd lose all seniority and all pay rate, pay, you know, if they started at $600 and they were up to a thousand, they would go back down to starting at 600. So on the one hand, they had to be absolutely the best at all times. She's also a product of her time. Her bosses are all men. She has to prove herself to them to keep her job. She holds the most, the second highest position at Seaview. Did I agree with what she did? Absolutely not. Is she, you know, what we would say, does she perpetuate systemic racism? She does. But there are the accounts that nurses told me that she was very, very good at what she did. And they attribute it to her for being really stellar at their job. Now, even with all that training, how long could a nurse expect to work there and not end up with TB? All of the nurses in my book work there over two decades and did not get tuberculosis. They tested positive for latent TB. I mean, they had late, sorry, they tested positive for TB. So they had latent TB, but they died in their late 80s and early 90s from other diseases, cancer, uh, heart attack. Um, they did not get tuberculosis. Some of the nurses did, but from what I understand, there weren't that many of them. And so far as I know, I mean, I, there were no statistics. There were no records kept how many nurses died of TB. But most of them worked decades and decades and decades. And actually coming up with the cure is, this was mind-blowing, this part of it. Because I think when we when we think about cures, it's, okay, we found it, we beat it, just give everybody this, we're good to go. But the creation of the TB cure was not without a bunch of hiccups and rocks and all of that stuff, right? It took years. Well, when they discovered isoniazid and the trials were first done at Seaview, just for context, the drug was not discovered at Seaview. The drug was discovered by Hoffman LaRoche Drug Company. It tested well on mice. Dr. Robichek and Dr. Selkoff got a call one day and said, basically, hey, you know that drug we've been talking about? It's doing really well on mice. Do you want to test it on humans? And they said, yes, we do. And that's how what somebody called the most grandiose human experiment in medical history took place at Seaview. It took a long time. It took nine years for them to tweak the dosage and the way isoniazid needed to work and in what combination before Seaview was able to close. But before isoniazid, there were hosts of drugs that people tested. Streptomycin was the first one that worked, but it stopped working after four to six months. They tried all different sulfur combinations that didn't work. It might arrest the disease for a little bit, but then it came back. And then there were all the quack cures, which are really fun to read, but harrowing to think about. You know, mice boiled in wolf's blood. Somebody said to go and inhale the fresh dung of a cow. It would cure tuberculosis. Leeches, the runoff from slaughterhouses, drinking that, it, all sorts of different, anything the mind could dream up. And people were desperate to get well. And so they tried it because they wanted the disease gone. And I think that's the most important thing. All the quack science and pseudoscience was out there because people really wanted to get well. And I mean, the trial and error is horrific to read about because, you know, we, we really only touched on Edna, but there are so many different characters in the book. 
I mean, listen, I just sat there thinking, oh boy, if the FDA was around for this and was actually watching this, they'd be like, you need to stop this right now. It looks like that person is kind of boiling their own skin type thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the same time, as you said, they, they do figure it out. But I mean, it was a really harrowing start to these trials because for some people, it seemed like you're cured, going home, everything's fine. For other people, it was hell on earth. Yeah, they. so one woman had said, if they had offered us arsenic, we would have taken it. And that was the desperation of people. They were at the mercy of the gold standard at the time was surgery. And these surgeries, the names were terrifying. Thoracoplasty, lobectomy, frenetic nerve crush, uh, pneumothorax. And they would go into surgery. And as I described, the surgeries turned into butchery. You know, ribs were being sawed out, sawed off six to eight at a time. The chest cavities were being punctured and filled with ping pong balls and wax packs to keep the lungs collapsed. And when you offered people a pill or a remedy that wasn't going to carve them up, they were fine with it. But the doctors too were working with trial and error. There were no such things as clinical trials overseen by government agencies. It was a kind of free for all. It was a, it was a gentleman's agreement that we're going to do this with some shred of morality. And that wasn't always the case. Robichek was an extremely moral doctor. And the, I think the doctors at Seaview were way more moral than a lot of other doctors. And his son said to me, so Robichek lost his father to tuberculosis. And that's what altered the course of his life. He watched his father suffer for many, many years. And he never got paid, didn't get paid a cent. All those years that he worked at, at Seaview and he was the medical director, he made his living off of his own practice. He believed that nobody should capitalize off of disease, especially tuberculosis. He made his money from private practice. If I can get you into a time machine and send you back to that time, who would you want to talk to the most? I gave you one hour with somebody from your book and you can ask them anything. They're going to answer truthfully to everything. Oh, <laughs> who would you want to talk to? Number one, I actually want to take Edna off the table because I think she's an easy answer. It's too easy. I'm going to make it hard on you. Somebody other than Edna. That is a really hard question. It's between Missouria, who's the other main nurse in my book, because she she's the one who encountered the Nazi. She's the one who encountered these terrible scenarios with redlining with the people who did not want her. They she was. She wanted to move into a house on a block where there were five white families and they signed a petition to not allow her to move in or one of those trial patients. But I did talk to the trial patients, so I'm going to take them off the table. There were two trial patients that were alive and I got firsthand testimony from them, so I'm going to take them off the table. I think it would be Missouria. That's who I really want to talk to and, and just ask her about that experience. She came up from Clinton, South Carolina, a hardline Jim Crow town. She wanted to integrate the nursing profession. She was an activist and a fighter and had this extraordinary passion for justice. And so I think it would be her that I'd want to sit down and talk to. What is it like talking to actual patients who who can really give you that firsthand account? Were they people that were just like, oh, yeah, I'll tell you everything. That was a crazy time. Or, I mean, there's a lot of trauma here. Is that a harder conversation than you would think? Believe it or not, Mamie Daniels or Mamie Blair had this rapier memory. 
what, what she remembered was extraordinary. And she described in great detail these fever dreams that she had. You know, her father was a grave digger at the Frederick Douglass Cemetery. And she said she spent six, spent six months lying on her back, just looking at the window, watching the sky change colors and falling into these fevered states where she would hallucinate and she would see like the Virgin Mary come to the foot of her bed and, you know, Bible quotes floating around. It was really, really intense listening to her and she just talked. And basically that part of the text is her testimony almost straightforward. It's been edited to flow narrative because her mind would go off in different directions. But that is basically her firsthand testimony. The other patients, I kind of turned their lives upside down. Milagros, I called the family and she had never told her family she had tuberculosis. She was 90 and she harbored the secret for almost 60 something years. And the only reason they found out is because the daughter answered the phone one day and she that she was so stigmatized from it. And it was very, very moving to hear her finally, when she agreed to talk with me, tell this story. I mean, there's just so many stories like that in this book. I I feel like everybody should want to read this, but I'll ask you this. I ask every author. There are some people who are very misled who say, oh, history, uh, history's boring. That's a class I took. I passed that class. I don't need to read it. Okay. If I put one of those people in front of you and they said, why should I read the Black Angels? What would you say? Well, I would tell them to, the first thing I would ask them is why don't you want to read a book about history? and hear what they had to say. But then I would just ask them if they could read the prologue. Um, I wrote this book for that type of an audience, for people who think history is boring. And I think a lot of times people think history is dry and boring because there's no human being at the center of the story. And this story is all about human beings. It's about people. It's not just a bunch of dry facts that you're going to get. And so I would ask them to stop for one minute and just read the first two pages, which sets up the prologue, sets up the story with that it is a human story. And and I think that's the best that I could do to try and, and strong arm somebody or maybe not strong arm, like pull them into history. I mean, there's so many books where you read, I'm thinking of um, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. Now, that story is the whole story of the Great Migration, but it's a human story. There's people involved in it. You follow their lives. You follow the narrative of what they went through, and you connect with the story in so many ways. And this story is about people who just want to live a free life. Well, it's wonderful. Maria, I loved it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this episode. Maria, thank you so much for coming on. The Black Angels, the book is amazing. Seriously, go out and get it. Uh, In the meantime, hit us up. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, throw us comments. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay cool, nerds. History Nerds United.